The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello, everybody. I hope you can all hear me. Um, my name is Dr. Clemens Rutner. I'm the director of research with the School of Languages, uh, Literatures, and Cultural Studies. Uh, I'm the organizer of our school's uh, research seminar, and I'm very delighted uh, since uh, this is so much zeitgeist, uh, the neoliberal workplace exhaustion, necrotemporality. So I couldn't think of any topic uh, that fits our pandemic times uh, better, particularly since they have radicalized the whole problem, I assume. And I would like to pass on to uh, uh, Professor Mary Cosgrove, our uh, head of the German department um, within our school, because uh, since this is uh, her field of research as well, I could not uh, think of any better host for this, um, for this uh, research seminar talk. Thank you, Mary. Thanks, Clemens. Um, so I'm delighted today to introduce Dr. Anne M. Mohall, who's our speaker at the research seminar. Um, Dr. Mohall joined us quite recently as a Government of Ireland postdoctoral research fellow in 2020, having studied and worked at universities in Ireland, the UK, the US and Russia uh, before coming to Trinity. She is a PhD in Comparative Literature from King's College London and MA qualifications in Anglo-Irish Literature and Comparative Literature respectively from UCD and NYU. She's authored several articles and a monograph on a French journal of philosophy. Um, but her current work, which she's going to be talking about today, addresses a series of questions surrounding the culture of information, work, and human agency in contemporary European and US thought. Her talk is entitled The Necrotemporalities of the Contemporary Workplace. And without any further delay, I will hand the word over to you, Dr. Mulhall. Uh, thank you so much, um, Mary and, and Clemence. Thank you for um, having me here today. Um, <laughs> I know you should never make an excuse at the beginning of a paper, but I kind of found out um, last week I, I was doing the paper. So it's kind of um, put together um, in a very sort of, it's the first iteration of, of these ideas. Um, I've also been at home with a three-year-old while doing it, so we can all relate to that. Um, so there's my excuse. Um, I'm gonna start now, I'm gonna share um, this screen, uh, which is my, my PowerPoint. Um, so I hope you can all see that. My paper, um, as has been announced, is called The Necrotemporalities of the Contemporary Workplace. Um, so I'm going to talk about um, a French novel and um, a, a film as well today. I was going to include um, an Austrian novel, but I, I don't think I'll have time for that. So just to begin, um, in the recent um, French novel um, of, of The Office, uh, Les Heures Souterraines, set in, in Paris in, in the late 2000s, the protagonist, Mathilde, has a significant instance of sort of what we call a temporal breakdown or temporal confusion 
while she's sitting alone in her office. So she's suffering from severe anxiety because of workplace bullying. And she imagines at that moment that time has agglutinated. Okay, it's kind of stuck together. It's ceased to unfold sequentially. So kind of mimicking um, her workplace difficulties and the likelihood that they will be resolved easily, time appears to have taken on this kind of amorphous character. Um, so the time has become denser. Um, and here's the, the quote in French. Um, it's amalgamated, it's fused. Time has become blocked um, at the mouth um, or the opening of a tunnel. So specifically, as these kind of workplace traumas begin to unfold across the novel, that's bullying, the effects of corporatization, globalization and displacement, this kind of network sensibility starts to um, assert itself with intensifying frequency. Time takes on a strange pattern. So Matilda, she's not able to kind of perceive things linearly. She's in this kind of altered mental state. And at the same time, she begins to become really upset with her own bodily degradation and she becomes victim to kind of a series of illnesses and injuries and begins to fantasize about the circumstances of her own possible death. So months of this kind of depression have led her to fantasize about uh, being blown to pieces in the Parisian metro station, her body kind of pulverized and scattered, sorry to be explicit. Um, here's the, uh, the quotation. So although it remains pure fantasy, within this novel. Um, Mathilde's vision highlights the topical issue of the ongoing suicide epidemic in corporate France. And her fantasy is not really surprising given uh, that recent research has shown that one in 25 French uh, corporate workers had regular fantasies about their own possible suicides. So in this novel, Mathilde never actually uh, carries out the act. But we gradually learn throughout that suicide is this kind of ever-present possibility that structures all of her encounters with the world of work. Um, so as kind of hinted um, by my own focus on the, on the kind of conjunctions of temporality and suicide and bodily demise, I want to suggest that this kind of, or these um, vignettes taken from this 21st century novel alert us to something that I don't think has been explored adequately really by existing theories of temporality or even by philosophies of work. So what I want to kind of um, propose today is kind of a way of pursuing and understanding the uh, conjunctions between death and time in the contemporary office. So for the moment I'll call this or, or for the next while I call this the necrotemporalities of the workplace. Now. I could also call it thanato politics. You know, I mean, these two aren't interchangeable as we've been warned before um, by, by a few theorists like Marina, I can't pronounce her name, but Grzynich and Jason Atrescu, like they're not interchangeable, but maybe thanato will be better than necro. So I have to figure that out. Um, so studies of temporality and studies of what um, Ashila Membe's huge contribution to what we consider the politics of death, and that's necropolitics, appear to exist sort of in a dialectical relationship in, in contemporary philosophy. So they each have a kind of thriving industry of interpreters and theorists willing to take these ideas into new realms. But for the most part, death and time kind of remain separate objects of study. Of course, there are cases where they've met in the middle and French philosophy is that, okay? 
debates on death, subjectivity, and, and the limit experiences um, we associate with death. Um, there are other kind of spaces that have been explored, maybe in studies of aging, studies of time horizons, uh, prison, uh, death row studies, studies of camp. So, I mean, these um, death and temporality do meet, but they tend to be very specific, specific spaces. Okay, and it was one of the most famous kind of was was George Ogamben's, you know, spatializing of the kind of state of exception, the temporal state of exception. When he talks about, you know, the the contemporary, uh, the kind of permanent spatial arrangement of the camp as, as as something that's permeating our contemporary world. Um, so on the one hand, we have a, a thriving realm of diagnosis of, of problems with time. And I suppose my own larger projects project actually fits in with that because I'm kind of pursuing this bigger problem um, um, of trying to kind of grasp new temporalities in the workplace and trying to understand how they maybe reflect fundamental changes in, in capitalism. Um, and I'm kind of looking at work since the financial crisis to think about that and to think about maybe a radical shift in how we're perceiving time. And I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting that maybe we, we haven't pursued the precise nature of this shift yet, okay? And we need to think about it. Um, and I suppose that study then fits into sort of a trend in contemporary um, philosophy and cultural studies to think about these ideas. So ways of considering uh, temporal anxieties of our present age have included a whole host of approaches. Um, now, Anne Fox's recent uh, really good book, Precarious Times, um, and, and books uh, from UCD, um, identifies how the ongoing debate on time and temporality revolves around a range of interconnected diagnostic tropes that aim to illuminate this kind of fundamental recalibration of the conditions of temporality in the network area, era. And she names all of these different approaches to time. It's a really rich area. Acceleration, resonance, immediacy, the extended presence, time-space compression, network time, and precarious times. So here, the, the study of time is noted as something that's really fundamental to understanding ourselves um, in, in the present era, and, and possibly as well diagnosing some sort of political problem um, that's at the heart of our organization of society, our lives, our work and relationships. And uh, Fuchs herself um, uncovers, and she does this through readings of German literature and culture, what she calls an aestheticized precariousness, okay, of the kind of temporal instabilities she looks at in our present age. Another thinker um, who thinks about these kind of conjunctions of time and culture is Robert Hassan. So he's kind of noting um, a problematic linkage, sorry, I thought I had a, a slide of his, sorry, a problematic linkage between new and emerging forms of temporality um, in our digital age and kind of new forms of injustice and oppression. So he's really politicizing this idea of these new forms of temporality. So he sees kind of emerging forms of political injustice as coming about um, with these new temporalities that they're emerging from the same globalizing process and they're driven by similar technologies. Um, and he says that this kind of um, political injustice manifests itself as a kind of powerlessness that we have where we try to adapt ourselves to the network, say. Um, speed is fetishized for him. 
okay and and the answer to this for Hassan is to kind of gain control and um, to gain autonomy over time ourselves okay so he sees this as a political imperative so he's really driving temporality studies as as does Anna, Anna Fuchs into the kind of realm of it's a political problem that we need to deal with okay it's not something neutral in the background it's something that's kind of affecting all of our lives and um, so these thinkers like they're all considering this kind of political injustice idea this oppression and um, precariousness and you know we can re remember that precariousness is always kind of linked to death as well by by in philosophy think of judith butler or, or berlant lauren berlant um, but these thinkers like hassan and fox are recognizing the pathological nature of time okay the pathological nature of the late modern time regime um, but I suggest that we need to have an even more integrated approach, okay, to kind of um, understand um, how this is resulting in the instrumentalization of the human being and the, the colonization and kind of commodification of selfhood, okay, um, and, and to connect this um, with kind of the ultimate colonization of life through death. So what I'm saying maybe is, and I, I, I'm repeating myself, but maybe there, is, there are, haven't been, you know, there, as yet, there haven't kind of been enough studies that have linked this kind of necro um, thanatological death thing uh, with, with temporality. Um, but maybe it's because, as Rosie Bradotti has recently claimed, that death has a long history of being unthinkable um, in Western uh, thought. Okay, that we've really only started to come to terms with the problem of death in a philosophical fashion since World War II. So um, she thinks, you know, it's only really become a discrete object of study since then. You know, we, we, we need to think of people like uh, French thinkers, I suppose, Bataille and, and Blanchot and, and even uh, Foucault's, prop, you know, um, his kind of preoccupation with the death of man or, or Barth's suggestion of the death of the author. So this kind of death coming into the foreground maybe from, from the kind of forties onwards. Um, so we could kind of suggest that a heightened moment then of thinking about this um, comes in the late nineties and the early two thousands. Okay, we have Agamben's Homo, Homo Saker, Sovereign Power and Bare Life, Judith Butler's Precarious Life and, and what I'm more focused on, I suppose, Ashila Membe's foundational article, Necropolitics. So the idea of death, the corpse, malaise, starts to really come into the, the popular realm in philosophy and cultural studies. Um, so, you know, um, I'm saying that these discourses have existed separately, um, and I'm concerned about how they exist in the studies of work. That's my real concern. Um, so conjunction of temporality work as well have always been something that sociologists have looked at and, and always kind of given pause for thought of sociologists. But the thanatological um, area, um, the thanatological tendencies of the 21st century workplace have kind of started to give philosophers uh, more pause as well. People like Sarah Waters in French studies, Savoy Zizek, of course, he's always around. Um, and, and people like Carl Sederstrom and psychiatrists like Christophe de Jures, they've, they've started to think about this, Christophe de Jure. But um, really have the two bet in a sustained way. So I think by looking at contemporary cultural production, 
we can start to understand how these topics, temporality and, and death, can be kind of taken together and be, can become a kind of a lens of a new, like a new fundamental importance, really, to reaching a critical understanding of the contemporary pathologies of work. Um, along with the kind of the upsurge in suicides in today's workplace, um, in, especially in the French case, but across the EU, the UK and the US, there's been an explosion of cultural studies to kind of, of cultural production, sorry, to kind of match that, okay, that not just reflect um, what's happening, but kind of take it into a new realm. Uh, French and Francophone film in particular has really kind of taken this as a theme. Um, given kind of a variety of, of responses, some of them very significant, maybe some of them not really challenging, but there um, at, the, at the very least. Um, so I'm gonna be talking about a film today called Corporate, uh, made in 2017. And its kind of main theme um, is how sustained moral harassment, harcèlement moral um, in the workplace can lead to these kind of adverse events like suicide. But it also details the kind of rush um, to try and conceal or deny the link between suicide and the challenges of, of corporate work. Um, I'll be looking at um, Film Studies um, uh, scholar Martin O'Shaughnessy, who talks a lot about these workers, worker suicide films. Um, and he, he makes the point that actually these worker suicide films, I mean, they don't really have many antecedents um, in French culture. And he's, he kind of wonders why. And, you know, elsewhere, he's can kind of confirming the increasing omnipresence of suicide and attempted suicide in French films and work. Um, but he also draws the question of temporality into the frame and suggests that the sense of the future foreclosed, perhaps, found its privileged mode of expression, sorry, this is a quote, in the wave of filmic suicides with the capacity to force systemic violence to the surface, but also to suggest the lack of alternative ways forward. So he's connecting this issue of temporality, uh, suicide uh, and uh, cultural production. So in other words, there's a kind of a deep and political connection between the reality of the suicide epidemic in France um, and the kinds of questions that socially conscious uh, French and Franco Francophone filmers, filmmakers are currently deciding to, to think about. Um, so O'Shaughnessy advises us um, that these films should be situated within a broader context of the, near, of, uh, the neoliberal workplace, increasingly associated with social suffering but at the same time, he doesn't want to see these films as just products of their period, okay? He also wants to see them as creative reactions uh, towards it. Um, so he's kind of wanting to see these films also as kind of autonomous artistic engagements, okay? Uh, that do more than simply, you know, visualize well-known social issues. Um, I think that's kind of a hard argument to make for a film like Corporate. Um, which kind of offers a more basic reflective engagement with the, with the problem of, of moral harassment that has kind of characterized some of the more high profile um, worker suicide cases in, in, in France. Um, so I will be talking about corporate a bit more, but I also wanna like go back to the literary realm. I think there's kind of been fewer um, worker suicide responses lately um, in the literary realm. 
but recent French novels of the workplace, uh, such as the novel, the Vigan's novel, or the earlier novel, La Vie Commune by Lydie Salvaire, has succeeded in documenting, reflecting cases of worker harassment during corporate restructuring. But also I want to argue in connecting questions of time and experiences of time in the workplace to the question of slow death through illness and the prospect of suicide. Um, and, and novels of the German new economy like Gerstoff and Nicht, or We Never Sleep, um, by the Austrian author uh, Catherine Rogler, has also touched on this question of workplace illness um, and the suicide of white collar workers. Now, I thought that I would get to speak about that as well today, but I kind of don't have time um, with, with uh, the other two. But, you know, um, workplace suicide, I mean, it's, it's been, you know, it's, it's a well-known problem in France, but it, it has also been on the rise in the past 20 years in other countries. And, and, and also things like work dis dissatisfaction, chronic illnesses, um, you know, there are statistics to show that Germany is as much part of this, I suppose, as, as other countries. <clears throat> um, so just to go back to the novel then, uh, Vigan's uh, novel focuses on this kind of successful female account executive. So she's done very well, Mathilde. She works for a global cosmetics company, but she disagrees with her boss, who's also her close associate, Jacques, associate Jacques um, but she, by this dis disagreement or through this disagreement, she unwittingly brings about the end of her career. Okay, um, and, and basically the devastation of her whole life. So after months of cold treatment, she's finally left with no computer to work with, no work to undertake. She's removed from her large office and she's placed in a kind of end of corridor box room beside the toilets. Her workers know, or her co-workers, know she has been badly treated but no one speaks up for her because they they are in tenuous positions themselves and they don't want to be recognized as keeping toxic company so she's no allies in the workplace and she kind of spirals into a deep state of depression this happens over a number of months okay so it's kind of a slow a slow burn really with this it's not immediate it's not explosive um, so what I hope to do with this is kind of take time seriously with the regard to necrotic tendencies in the contemporary work environment. Um, the two fictional accounts, um, the Vigans and the corporate I've chosen, they, they best exemplify, I suggest, the role that temporality plays, okay, in the, in the, in the, um, you know, what people are exposed to or subjects are exposed to through these kind of hazards uh, that accompany economic liberalization and labor market reform and the, the intense corporatization and restructuring of companies. Um, so recognizing and understanding the role of new temporal arrangements on working subjects is necessary if we're really to come to terms with what Sarah Waters writing about the suicide epidemic um, in the French workplace describes as the profound human and social consequences of a new international division of labor um, based on, sorry, based on lived experiences of work. Um, so I talked about the kind of slowness of the things that happen uh, to, to, in, the, uh, in the Delphine de Vigon book. Um, so Mathilde is kind of subject to lots of things ongoing at once. 
but they're they're all kind of happening over over a longer period. So what I want to do is kind of borrow some discursive tropes um, from other areas. And one of them is from human geography, this idea of slow violence. And I take this from um, Tom Davies, a geographer, who's kind of looked at the long term attritional damage that's kind of caused by toxic seepage onto communities. And he's talking specifically about um, what they call Cancer Alley in Louisiana. And um, so he sees this kind of petrochemical uh, pollution as a long-term attritional form of violence that can be meted out, so, out on, so, uh, on subjects. And I kind of want to adopt that maybe as a metaphor uh, for the contemporary workplace. Davies himself borrows this idea of slow violence um, from the environmental humanities scholar, Rob Nixon, who describes, and this is a quote, a violence of delayed destruction that is dispersed across time and space or attritional violence that is not even viewed as violence at all. Um, and Davies sees this kind of violence as, as a violence of late modern necropolitics, where communities are exposed to the power of death and life. Another thinker who's been kind of thinking uh, along these ideas and has been really influential in bringing the kind of concepts that are similar to slow violence to interpret current atrocities, I suppose, is Lauren Berlant, the, the cultural theorist. So in Cruel Optimism, she provides a way of understanding forms of violence that take place in the everyday, okay? Where for her, slow death is a condition of being worn out by the activity of reproducing life. So by that, she means engaging in the everyday things like work, relationship, money, food, sex, family, social, sociality, and so on. So what Bernan does particularly well in this book is to distinguish, as she puts it, environment from event. Okay, so it's a way of thinking about slow death in long-term adverse conditions without succumbing to any model of duration or temporality that is eventful, okay? Or that relies on the terminology of crisis to convey or critique, um, you know, critique conditions that, that people have been living with over a long period of time. Now, because this um, paper is just extremely new, I haven't had a chance to think about uh, Berlant's work too much in, in conjunction with it, but I'd like you to keep that point in mind um, that she makes, uh, because it reflects, as I see it, this kind of clash of temporalities that comes to the fore when we're thinking about suicide in the workplace, okay? The quotidian violence that um, the subject is exposed to in the everyday um, versus the kind of eventful destructive, um, I suppose destructive event that, that, that suicide is. Um, so the, the slow seepage then of everyday violence might be a way of reframing or coming to understand the kind of attritional damage that must be borne out in contemporary corporate space. You know, this can be attested to through a variety of statistics concerning, you know, mental health, physical health, the rise in fatal illnesses related to workplace pressure, and of course the steep upward course that, that workplace suicide has taken in the past number of years. The Vigan novel, uh, novel details the many ways in which the main protagonist, Mathilde, falls victim to such violence through forms of moral harassment she suffers. And th these kind of transmute into horrifying and physical mental changes in her person. 
mysterious illnesses, mental and physical traumas, breakages, falls, accidents, loss of personal, auton personal autonomy, creativity, interpersonal ability, pride and friendship. Um, so I've already hinted that the prospect of suicide, you know, really continuously structures her relationship with her working life. But the violence that takes place in Les Heures Souterraines is not kind of of the immediate or explosive type at all. It's not spectacular. Um, for, for the theorist Rob Nixon, who I mentioned before, slow violence is neither instantaneous nor, nor overtly dramatic, yet nonetheless it has dramatic consequences. Mathilde is not fired in some dramatic act. She's not transferred from her office building, but she undergoes injury to her personal integrity in a, a series of slow and almost unaccountable acts. She's frozen out of company decisions, uh, of which she was once kind of chief arbiter. She's frozen out of events. She has her office moved. Her technical equ equipment is interfered with. She loses the ear of her boss and she gets kind of told by her HR boss that she must kind of retool and re-motivate herself to work in a new area um, or else kind of risk demotion or, or, or the eventual loss of her job. So that's kind of this idea of the kind of slow violence that's, that's permeating the novel. But I'm also interested in how the experiences of a time are brought to life here. Um, how can we square that concept of the slow attritional violence with this kind of pervasive idea that we have now in temporality studies and in current understandings of time, that time is actually speeded up, okay? How, according to many uh, critics at the moment, including Hartmut Rosa, um, Cernicek and Williams, Paul Verillo and Lutz Kupnik, that the pace of the world and organisation is constantly accelerating. I mean, we hear this the whole time. We hear this in, in popular discourse. You know, we, we also hear it in kind of um, philosophical discourses as well. So Hartmut Rosa, for example, describes a vast critical theory of social acceleration. And at the same time, he offers kind of more empirical evidence uh, to suggest that there have been um, increases in speed that have given birth and nurtured uh, modernity, given birth to and nurtured modernity. Um, but at the same time, Rosa, like a lot of his other colleagues who, who pursue the study of time, have noted that the same drive is actually what disrupts modernity. Um, so an interpreter of Rosa, well, he's actually his translator as well, uh, Jonathan Trejo Mathis suggests that the following, um, that the increase in speed that made modernity possible is something uh, that now actually threatens to break it apart at the seams, he says it, okay? And leave us in this kind of um, characteristically late condition, he calls it, late modern condition of frenetic standstill. Uh, other critics have shown how the accelerative impulses in modernity can lead to a time that's stuck, that's, um, or, or even a desensitization uh, of the subject to the time that's unfolding or to the experience of time that's unfolding. Uh, for Jean Baudrillard, um, because of these kind of accelerative tendencies, and this is a quote, time itself, lived time, no longer has time to take place. Um, uh, Lutz Kupnik describes a state of standstill within accelerated modernity 
he perhaps gives it a more positive spin. Um, but for the autonomous Marxist, Marxist critic John Holloway, time has become stodgy, almost solid. So this kind of experience of the stuck time, the stodgy time, this solid time is really present um, in the novel that I've been looking at. You know, I, have, I outlined it in the beginning, Matilda has this feeling that time has become stodgy. It's amalgamated, fused, become stuck. And her experience in the workplace had always been one of kind of forward momentum, flexibility, but increasingly this kind of slow drip drip um, of various magnitudes of workplace trauma has brought this kind of newfound temporal perception of standstill. She becomes obsessed with repetition, um, the movements of the elevator up and down, the movement of bodies in the metro station, and critically uh, becomes kind of fixated uh, on her own body, the workings of her own body. She seems unable to look ahead. She can't perceive the kind of traditional linear arrow of time. She has no future vision of herself, which is really important because as we probably know kind of from HR speak, we're meant to have this idea you know, of where we'll be in five years time, where we'll be in 10 years time, how we see ourselves developing um, as, uh, as workers, as, as um, professionals, whatever you'd like to call it. But she doesn't seem to have this. She has this kind of feeling of a kind of just dreadful extended present, okay? Or this kind of strange buildup towards uh, subjective annihilation. Um, so, you know, we're getting this kind of hint of temporality, death here. Um, I want to kind of turn to Franco Borardi because he is one person who has, you know, attempted to kind of put these together, attempted to connect temporality with necrosis. And he's a, he's a thinker that employs this model or deploys this model of accelerated time a lot to, to think about um, traumas of the body in late modernity. Um, so he's lately described the compulsively accelerated rhythm of social interaction. He's talking about speed becoming internalized and triggering some kind of pathological working. Um, and he's funny line where he says, you know, he's describing the hyper-connected body finds itself in this kind of digital necrosis. So inciting the violence of contemporary capitalism, uh, Berardi identifies a host of necrotic type, type tendencies that come out in kind of human populations that are subject to its order. He identifies spasms that undermine the subject's capacity to produce or even to be. When he's talking about the internalization of speed, he says it creates these compulsions, these spasms, panics, desensitization, disturbances, disconnects, traumas, and leads ultimately to long-term emotional impoverishment, impoverishment, sorry. So one of his chief approaches is to show how in today's workplace, the internalization of external pressures takes place. And the, the kind of uh, disintegration of the accelerative tendencies um, that we know from someone like Hartmut Rosa, for example, are in Berardi's, um, uh, in Berardi's approach kind of absorbed by the subject. Um, so he, he tells us, you know, um, these things that we thought that were, were external difficulties like exploitation, this is a quote, sorry, competition, mobbing, precariousness, um, and layoffs 
are no longer perceived as a result of conflictual social relations. So on the other hand, they're kind of internalized and we see them as personal inadequacies. So there's something that's kind of coming to take over the subject um, in a certain way. So he really thinks that this problem leads towards workplace suicide. He says we're trapped in, an, in a necro necrotic condition, excuse me, um, that leads to suicide. So we can really see that Berardi is hinting towards what, what I suppose we could start to now put together as, as, as maybe like a chrono politics of workplace suicide. Um, so to kind of think through this more, I'm going to move on to the 2017 film Corporate, um, directed by Nicolas Silon. Um, so it directly focuses on the crisis of work um, and the suicide epidemic that we're talking about. Um, and it, it kind of shows the tactics that corporate or corporations use to divest themselves of, of um, unwanted workers, let's say. So the, the film begins um, with video footage of people on a skiing holiday. We later learned that the holidaymakers are in fact corporate managers and, and HR bosses. And they've been, um, or they're from the, the global food company Essen, and they've been on, on a team building exercise at Chamonix. So a few scenes later, then we witness the suicide of an employee at their headquarters in Paris. As the film unfolds, we learn that the employee who took his own life, Dizier, had been an accountant who was strategically forced out of his position by his manager. And she was under pressure to do so by her HR colleagues. So the eventual release of this video footage, which was suppressed by the company, reveals that the Chamonix holiday was actually a HR training uh, retreat where management's uh, staff were, were taught strategic techniques to kill off employees metaphorically, you know employee killing like it involves just kind of weeding out employees who are too costly to employ any longer or who don't fit into the company's vision of its future they're often older more settled and they're deemed to be kind of these unmalleable uh, forces so the training shows how hr and managers uh, connive to kind of create this impossible condition for the employee to continue working at the company and save on redundancy fees so I'm just going to share um, uh, a scene, uh, if it works for me. Yeah, please work. Um, so just just briefly, this scene um, shows. Uh, uh, this is a scene from the the HR training ground, uh, and she's showing um, uh, this woman Emily is. Um, showing an accounts manager how to like get rid of an employee basically so the idea is that the employee's mother is is sick this is the pretend um they're acting it out like that the, the employee's mother is sick and that he needs to find ways to use that to motivate the employee to to move so Compris? Que si vous jouiez mieux, ça passerait mieux aussi. Mais euh, attendez, parce que là, là, de faire ça. Pardon. Euh, voilà. 
parler. Quelqu'un d'autre trouve ça dégueulasse Est-ce que vous trouvez ça dégueulasse d'aider les gens à prendre leurs responsabilités Et être acteurs de leur choix Moi, ce que je trouve dégueulasse, c'est de laisser les gens pourrir dans le déni et le mensonge. Non On reprend Pardon, je suis désolé, j'y arrive pas là. Je... Merci, Xavier. Voilà tout ce qu'on peut vous proposer, monsieur Dupont. Mais comment vous pouvez me proposer un poste aussi loin Vous savez que ma mère est malade Je sais que vous traversez une période très difficile. Croyez-moi, le dévouement dont vous faites preuve ne fait que renforcer mon désir de vous aider. Mais je, je ne peux pas tout je ne peux surtout pas faire des choses aussi graves à votre place. Je ne peux pas faire des choses aussi graves à votre Um, so I'm going to share my screen again. Apologies for that. I'm ironically eaten into precious time. Um, so the main kind of exponent of, of this kind of aggressive trading in the film is, is this woman called Emily, um, who become submerged in guilt really for her role in the events that lead to, to Didier's death. Um, So he did, did, Didier became this kind of victim of these techniques. The person practicing in the video there is in fact the manager of the accounts department. Um, but Emily uh, turns whistleblower in the end. She's very guilty about it all. She implicates herself as an essential component in the corporation's wider policy of this kind of employee killing. So an investigation ensues, the strategy of restructuring is revealed and the firm is held accountable. Uh, the film ends you know, kind of um, uncertainty. We're not really sure whether she gets convicted of anything or not. Um, but one of the kind of problematic issues foregrounded in the film is Essence implementation of an employee development and restructuring manifesto. And it's titled in English, Ambition 2016. Ambition 2016 is referred to at several points throughout the film. We soon learned that the manifesto had been in large part authored by Emily. Um, who herself had only actually joined the company, you know, a little bit earlier. So the program lays out this kind of uh, series of personal and professional growth target areas, both for employees and for the company. Um, the scene shows an, an HR personnel quizzing an employee, the first scene, and how they envision themselves in relation uh, to the company in, say, 10 years' time. There are a number of other scenes within corporate that also kind of underscore this anxiety about employees' futures. Um, 
the dovetailing of personal growth and professional development is, of course, it's not new in the workplace, but the Essen company's aggressive plan to shrink its workforce and to produce the remainder as model subjects by forcing them to envision, envision their kind of long-term future potential only through the lens of Essen offers this kind of paradox, I suppose, in temporality as well. So the paradox is kind of one suspended between the rehabilitation of traditional values of security, loyalty and long-termism and the contemporary reality of the work economy, where the repetition of the language of crisis, fallout, downturn and loss are used by the company to divest itself of irreformable workers, while also to, to garner sympathy. So what Essen, Essen, the company ultimately captures is this growing trend in French or rather global, global corporate life. So first the, the corporation kind of shrinks um, the workers' personal ambitions, ideals and their sense of their potential by insisting on the short-term logic of a crisis. Um, it kind of presents a, a narrative of fragility uh, to the worker and prevents the worker from planning ahead in any kind of meaningful way. But this shrinkage is then masked through the future-oriented language of ambition and the promise of personal growth, uh, that while promising to redeem the worker can necessarily only take place within the ideological and physical confines of the company itself. So the story um, as it unfolds in corporate really bears a striking resemblance to high profile cases of worker suicides in France, notably um, the case of uh, France Telecom, which after a long court case had to admit its liability um, in the endangering the lives of, a, of at least 39 employees uh, through restructuring, 19 who taken their own lives, uh, 12 I think it was who'd attempted to, and others who had suffered enormous physical and mental illnesses uh, because of company policy. So it becomes kind of hard, as I mentioned before, to see the artistic autonomy that separates corporate from the, the reality it portrays. But nevertheless, the, what the film allows to unfold in this very vivid way is kind of a rendering of the problem I've been trying to consider here today, which is the meeting of these kind of two temporalities, the first of the slow, attritional harm um, that takes place over months or even years of bullying management strategies and then the kind of explosive rupture that's created by even a single suicide in the place of work so it's kind of the meeting of the quotidian with the eventful um, considering this the spate of suicides at companies like France Telecom Sarah Waters again I'll mention her summarizes this kind of temporal conflict quite well when she notes that um this kind of phenomenon of workplace suicides, um, whereby individuals in the face of extreme pressure at work choose to take their own lives within the ordinary and quotidian setting of today's workplace, bring to four experiences of trauma. So this kind of connection between just the everyday and then this kind of um, more traumatic eventful experience, okay, that maybe we find hard to put together um in in our in our minds but she can she kind of help further helps us to develop this um this idea um of the two kinds of violence when she the kind of creeping violence versus the explosive violence when she suggests that suicide constitutes a brutal intrusion of flesh and blood 
um, into what's sometimes kind of perceived as a as a bloodless, technologically slick digital economy, and and these suicides, as she says, give material embodiment um, to an otherwise kind of unperceived trauma of material production. And we could say, and it's next of kin, like immaterial labor. Okay, it's doing the same thing for both. Um, so corporate speaks to all of these realities. Didier uh, Dalma's work, Suicide, it really takes place only minutes into the film. And it becomes this kind of brutal intrusion into this everyday world of HR that's been set up in the film. You know, meetings, evaluation, progress, one-to-ones, she's wine lunches, phone calls, and, and at one point she's sitting there playing Candy Crush on her phone. So, but before Didier um, commits the act, he's kind of seen hovering around in shots. He appears like this kind of wretched ghostly figure haunting Emily, looking for answers about his, his current um, highly insecure position um, instead of the kind of the spurious excuses that she's been giving him about his position. I'm kind of going to wrap up now. I want to just <clears throat> ask a few questions um, and describe the way I want to take this research um, in the future. Because I said it's very early days. Um, so I'm kind of saying, like, what are the kind of temporal realities um, of suicide and the temporal experiences that unfold in the lead up to taking one, one's own life in, in the corporate setting? How do we think about that? Waters and, and others like, like uh, Christophe Dechour, the psychiatrist, and they've kind of well documented the raft of notes and letters that accompany the French corporate suicide, where victims seek to legitimate or explain their own decision to take their lives. Um, usually they explain it in relation to workplace atrocities um, that they've suffered at the hands of management. Um, and often these notes kind of speak to issues of temporality, acceleration, heightened expectations of productivity, questions of future ambition, um, uh, you know, questions of the lack of ambition or lack of any hope kind of permeates um, these, these notes. Uh, what Carl Sederstrom and Peter Fleming have identified in their critical intervention on the contemporary organisation of work, Dead Man Working from a few years ago, is precisely uh, the phenomenon of kind of this thing they call the prolonged living death of the contemporary worker. And how uh, for some workers, the obvious way to end the tyranny of work might be to end themselves. Sederstrom and Fleming's intervention interprets the decision to take one's own life as kind of removed from any discourse of choice. Um, as the title portrays um, for them, it's often true that the working subject of neoliberal corporate organization has already actually died this kind of death. Now, I want to think about what happened if we kind of took these ideas on a bit further. Um, how do we think about questions of individual sovereignty and the role of death or the imagination of death in constituting sovereignty? Imagination of one's own death in constituting one's own sovereignty. So this kind of interrogation would maybe take us back full circle um, to, to Bataille's vision of excessive potential of death or Mbembe's integration of Bataille's vision into an understanding of 21st century necropolitics. At the same time, overlaying uh, these concepts with work by Catherine Malibu um, on say the irregular accident that is death, how, as she says, being for death, and this is a quote, must invent itself 
make itself um, at the last moment so that death, which is possible at every moment, finally becomes possible. So my question is what divides the possible from the becoming possible? And what identifiable role does temporality play in this transition? What is that that separates Mathilde's uh, fantasy of dismemberment uh, from Didier's enactment of self-annihilation? Uh, self so these are questions that I kind of want to pursue in later versions of this. And I hope that I can get your help in thinking through it. <clears throat> so that's all I have to say for now. Um, thanks uh, for listening. And if we have time for questions, that'll be good. Thank you. Thanks very much, Anne, for a, a, a really super paper. Um, so I'm looking for it. I'm, I'm now peering at my own screen going, where's that bit again? <laughs> so so uh, no, really, really um, very, very interesting altogether. And, and great to hear, um, great to hear, um, uh, uh, you know, something on this kind of material from from a different jurisdiction actually so so really really good uh, so i'm going to um uh see i have a couple of questions that have already come in so i'm opening the floor so everybody please do um uh put your questions into the chat if you wish um so michael cronin says thanks for a very interesting and timely lecture is there a sense in which cognitive behavioral therapy the classic corporate response to mental difficulty replicates the temporal regime of cognitive capitalism and necropolitics. So, so that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And then another question uh, from Ursula Fanning. Really interesting paper, thank you. I'm curious about the way language might be represented in the texts you're looking at. That's a, a really good point, Ursula. I had wondered about that myself. You mentioned HR speak at one point, and of course the idea of killing employees. Is there a focus on the language of deformity or a focus on the language of or deformities of language in the workplace? Mm -hmm. So there are those two, two questions to begin with. Yeah. Okay. Thank you um, both for, for your um, excellent questions. Um, yeah, the, the question about um, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I mean, we could think of that as kind of the, the a question of time again, as you, as you kind of mentioned. I mean, from what I know, the kind of cognitive behavioral therapy is kind of the, the, the more quick fix um, solution to things. You know, you're, you're not thinking about this correctly. You need to see it this way. Um, you can kind of see this um, language this kind of and I never thought about this before but um this kind of language coming through both in corporate um this kind of uh I suppose slow kind of seeping um um idea that you know you're you're not thinking correctly you're not approaching the job correctly the problem is with you um, you need to kind of change how you, your attitude to the workplace. I mean, this comes across particularly in the HR conversation. I didn't get into it um, in um, uh, with with Mathilde in in Les Heures Souterraines, um, where they, they it almost feels like, and I hate this word gaslighting, but 
<laughs> that's used everywhere but this kind of feeling that um you know <laughs> Matilda's kind of been been lied to been been led down this other pathway through the kind of the, the HR speak that's kind of resembling this kind of um cognitive behavioral therapy but that linked to, to cognitive capitalism specifically as maybe Lazzarato describes it that would be an interesting thing to pursue which I haven't you know thought about or looked at but but thank you I think think about um to Ursa's question um I think it kind of speaks to a bit of of what Michael um was hinting at um the, la the language or deformities of language in the workplace. Yeah, this is not something that I have focused on. I mean, this this question of 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 killing came up. I think in um, um, the 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 novel. Yes, there certainly is um, uh, this kind of and and also the kind of changeability of language. You know. Um, this actually more comes up in La Vie Commune, Lydie Saver, the, the earlier novel that I briefly mentioned, it, you know, how this, this worker is kind of not keeping up with the, with the language even of the workplace at the moment. So she's so far behind that, you know, the, the classic language of work is almost the deformed language. It's, it's, it, well, it hasn't been reformed. It hasn't, um, you know, this, this person kind of isn't able to integrate themselves specifically um into into the workplace because they haven't got this this kind of um workplace speak um so i think that is something that that i could could pursue more but maybe i haven't thought about i mean if anybody has anything to say about that or, or ursula if you um any idea that, that you know something that i i haven't thought about or covered i'd love to to kind of know more um well, it's, I mean, I can come in there. What, what yeah. strikes me, I mean, I've really only looked at German novels, but one of them is the Rugla text, which you, uh, yeah. uh, which you uh, featured there. And it's sort of the, one of the first and most famous texts in, the, in this recent wave mm -hmm. in Germany um, or in the German speaking lands, I should say. Um, and uh, what, what I find quite striking is, and it's not, mind you, it is not confined only to texts that deal with workplace issues and temporality, is this sort of recourse to ever more extreme stroke, uh, quasi unreadable, um, very uncomfortable aesthetics, extremely uncomfortable on the page aesthetics um, that reflect on, on the world. And, and, and I did wonder about that. Um, and I see there's another quest, another comment or question that's come from Miriana. Can necrotemporality, and I think it, it connects into this, can necrotemporality, and I think it's suicidal workplace cancellation be related to the notion of necro resistance? And I, I just wondered as well, I, I don't know if that question was um, going in that direction, but the idea of sort of resistance, I wondered, you know, um, the, the filmmaker um, that you, one of the filmmakers you, you talked about said that his, you know, that films should not just show us, present us with products of this monolithic mm -hmm. sort of hegemon there is no, there is no alternative, you know, and uh, what, what's the solution? There's no way out, um, et cetera, et cetera. 
um, but rather what are the creative responses to it. So, and that might connect into your last point about sovereignty. So, so that so Miriana's uh, yeah Miriana's question was: Can necrotemporality and suicidal workplace cancellation be related to the notion of necro resistance? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. And you always kind of see with um, those who work, I mean, it's a very sensitive area to work in, of course, you know, for, for those like Sarah Waters or, or even Carl Sederstrom or Christophe Dejour, who are actually <clears throat> dealing with, you know, these very real everyday cases of suicide, you know, and they're, they're writing about suicidal uh, notes and, um, you know, like what what people have said to their families and things like that and there's the big question of blame as well okay that that, that that comes across in all of these who's to kind of blame for this but i think that you know all of these thinkers are clear not to kind of um i mean i think someone like sarah waters especially would say look we cannot just use these um suicides as kind of totems of resistance as well you know we have to kind of under, understand you know the kind of what leads up to to this kind of to, to these things that happen um so so i think you know you have to be very careful with that in the past i've kind of thought about <clears throat> i've published something on this idea of well you know um kind of illness as a form of resistance in the workplace. Well, I think I've kind of subsequently rethought that. Um, I don't know where it's going, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, we could sort of try to, to, to feed in, you know, identification of temporal problematic issues in a political sense um, and what's happening um, in, in terms of, bodies in crisis, you know, whether through illness or, or, um, or suicide with, yeah, I mean, I, I think we can kind of through thinking about and speaking about, and of course, the produ cultural productions, yes, formulating some kind of, of resistance. But I think I like Waters and others would be, try to be sensitive about not kind of just absolutely you know and I think there is on some things that you know some themes it's just it's 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 very sort of it's extremely difficult yeah why I'm what I what I'm interested in is the aesthetics yeah what are the aesthetics in filmic terms is that where we need to look do we need to look at form um you know because uh because surely that's where the cultural product can rage against the machine yeah. and fight back against the empire yeah. so to speak you know absolutely but the problem is when i think at least when it's a film like corporate i kind of i suppose i've said this already but I, it's hard to see that kind of artistic autonomy it's hard to see that thing that separates the film itself um from the actual events if if you know what i mean i don't think it's there's enough separation there to kind of see it as an active kind of creative um yeah 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 resistance yeah well maybe maybe the documentation of the situation suffices to be honest you know but i'm yeah. just looking at all these questions that are coming in so somebody has asked a really good question it's an anonymous anonymous attendee 
are corporate soldiers even aware that they've been totally indoctrinated? Uh, this is again, this question of resistance and how do they deal with their life and retirement after years of office speak in, um, in all aspects of their life? Another comment from Alex Mountfield, is there a relationship between necropolitical states and regimes, a la Mbembe, and uh, labor markets firms that structure necrotemporal experiences for workers? That's a really uh, great question as well. Um, yeah, so if you maybe want to take those questions. Yeah, um, I'll just speak to the, the one about the corporate soldiers. I, I think the best um, creative response to that is actually the, the novel you've mentioned, the, the Catherine Rogla um, novel, because um, it's about workplace suicide, but it actually, um, it's about several workplace suicides. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to say that uh, the smile on my face or anything, but it's just the book, you know, it's how it presents it is, is, is quite well. There's everybody from a young kind of starting, uh, person starting out in their career to um, um, a man, I think in his late forties, maybe early fifties, who has been one of these corporate soldiers who speaks the language, who, um, speaks the kind of corporate language to other colleagues and kind of forces them into positions um, that they may be uncomfortable with. Um, but he himself has kind of interspersed years of breakdowns with years with them with, um, actually kind of continuing with the work. And he's one of the suicides. And I think that um, it, the, 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 the Rogla novel actually does well to kind of show that yes even if you're kind of indoctrinated there is still this kind of distance um, um from it um so that's kind of one novel that you might look to if you're into that question um the other question yeah the, the necropolitical from alex yeah necropolitical states and regimes again this is somewhere something that i would need to be very careful with um because it's not it's too easy and not right, let's say, to just kind of implant this idea of the necropolitical, which has very specific, um, is a very specific context and has very specific connotations for Mbembe, um, because he's talking about, you know, kind of the necropolitical states and regimes, and he's specifically talking about the kind of violence that's kind of meted out on, on specific communities, okay? So he doesn't, um, kind of talk about, um, you know, any of these kind of corporate regimes, I suppose, and, and how they affect workers of corporate regimes. Um, but I suppose in the kind of years that have intervened between Mbembe's initial um, writing of this, uh, the kind of necropolitical has taken on several new kind of strands and, you know, it's been brought into kind of other contexts. And more and more we are like hearing about the kind of links between states and regimes and um, corp corporations. I mean, they, I don't need to say that to you, everybody knows that. But um, yeah, there might be a way where we can think about it um, in, in, a, in a more integrated way, okay, to think about this kind of linkage between um, states and regimes and, and, and corporations in terms of this. But I want to be very careful um, about how I take the idea of the necropolitical. And that's why I said, maybe I should be talking about fanatical political instead, you know? Um, but what I do want to say is that like, you know, there is something murderous at the heart of the corporate regime that's allowing this to happen. 
or that's forcing these problems to the surface. And that might be something that Panato, or like just the kind of politics of death in this way, um, doesn't or simply doesn't allow for or doesn't make clear to us. Um, well, thanks. And um, there's there's another uh, question further down from another anonymous attendee. So very timely paper, but mentioning a French series in human resources mm -hmm. and whether you've encountered this show, does it fit in within the scope of your research? No, I actually, thank you for telling me about it. <laughs> I have, lately, I just, my TV watching has kind of diminished because of various reasons. So I, I yeah, I I am, um, haven't actually seen that, but I'd love to. And thank you for, for letting me know. And I see, you know, you've talked, you know about mental health and the firm and, and things like that so it is quite topical I'm, I'm thinking about this relationship between you know what we saw on tv I suppose um with with Megan and, and Oprah and this you know what we're thinking about today as well so it's interesting thank you um and and there there's a reference to working in the zombie university it all resonates what we're uh well you know the neoliberalization of the higher education sector is something we all live with and we all feel uh, so that's from Mary Galler. Um, you're definitely onto something with the temporality question. Uh, so uh, a good response from there. And then um, with the accelerated move from the physical office space to the digital yeah. space in corporate world, will some corporates use this for even further surveillance of their workers? Mm -hmm. Could further regulation be needed? Very good question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was wondering how to end this paper. Uh, you know, I said, well, I want to ask all these questions about this death and sovereignty and all that. But I also want to say, look, I know what work's become in the past year. It's very different. OK, we're in a different physical space. Actually, the picture um, I have the, uh, behind the my uh, PowerPoint is actually HubSpot there on the keys. And I just thought it was a, an interesting picture because it <clears throat> I walk by it every day or at least walk by it when schools were open to to drop my daughter in to her playgroup in the mornings and um you know it's just this vast empty building and I think the other thing about it is you know you have this can you guys see it um I'm just sorry I mean, I mean to share this um share screen sorry just um so this is the building um i'm talking about here the the hubspot building um you know it's just this kind of empty shell um but it also has this kind of reference to something that went before they've kept this old space in front um and they put the glass uh, you know they put the glass building behind it but like there's this hole here in the front of the facade and it looks like was there a clock there or something is it an old form of temporality that we're not kind of engaged with anymore but um besides that yeah to think about this kind of idea um you know yes we've kind of moved from the office space into the bedroom or wherever we could possibly do our work um i don't know what way it's going to go i mean i haven't actually kind of seen any good work on this yet i mean there have been a few books published about the, the, the pandemic and, and what it means for surveillance and it means for um, us as subjects. But I think the question of work needs to kind of be, be um, 
be 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 thought about a little bit more. So if anyone has any, we'll all be we'll all be hot desking in an in an accelerated uh, in an accelerated context by by the time the pandemic is over. You know, because we won't yeah. have any we won't have any stagnant old buildings to return to. They, they'll have been hot desked. You know, in line with the, the that's uh, of course just a silly remark. Um, uh, Clements actually asked me to ask you if, on his behalf, if you know the documentary films of Michel Glavoger, but I think you actually referenced, was, is that not Dead Man Working? No, that's not a Glavoger? No, that's the Carl Sederstrom book. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. There, oh, I see, there's a film. Um, yeah. I, I, I thought it was Glavoger. I'm pretty sure yeah. I have it on my shelves uh, in yeah. the office, but... Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, so uh, are there are there any other questions? I think I hope I haven't missed anybody because it's been a really good set of questions from, from um, and I, I'm conscious that you've been talking for well over an hour now. Uh, um, so, um, so, so perhaps I might, uh, I might uh, release you from, and, uh, thank, thank you. Thank you most uh, kindly for um, for such a stimulating paper, which we can all relate to in, in myriad different ways. And and uh, the best of luck with with the project, um, which sounds great. Thank you so much, and, and thanks thanks for having me, and thanks to everybody who came along to listen and, and ask questions. And, you know, I had a great time in questions. That was that was nice. Thank you. So I'm not sure who formally ends these meetings, but um, nice to meet you, Anne. I'm sure we'll cross. Exactly, camp. exactly. I can't wait to actually see people in real life <laughs> as well. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. So the Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral Sands. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.